Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're focused on Genesis 33 through 38. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google uh, Podcasts. You can find all those links in the show notes. And please feel free to ask any questions that you have on future Old Testament Reading Plan episodes uh, by going to bit.ly slash ask hyphen OT. That's bit.ly slash capital A-S-K hyphen capital O capital T. I'm looking forward to hearing any of the questions that you may have on next week's readings uh, or on any of the past week's readings. So as I said, uh, this is Genesis 33 through 38. And and really the idea behind these chapters is the difference between people and objects. Now, I want to define a term before we get into this, before we get into looking at what Jacob does and does not do. And the term is objectification. Uh, this is a term I think that uh, can get thrown around uh, here and again, and, and really what it what it means to me is whenever we consider a person as an object, that is, whenever we caricature uh, or a, a person as two-dimensional, you could think of it like this, whenever a person becomes just one characteristic, they've become a caricature. That means that if we see a person just because of what their body looks like, or see a person just because of their skills in math, or see a person just because of uh, who their kids are, or what generation they're in, that's objectification. That's reducing a person created in God's image simply to an object or to a certain quality. And Jacob, his entire life has been about the objectification of people while he's been in pursuit of possessions. We see this with how he objectifies his brother Esau, simply as the person who has the birthright. We see this in how he objectifies his father Isaac as the person who gives the blessing. We see this in how he objectifies Leah as simply the daughter he has to marry in order to get Rachel. We see this in how he objectifies Laban as the person who will give him uh, crops, who will give him animals, who will give him uh, wives, and so on and so forth. And so we open our uh, set of uh, set of readings of this week with Jacob meeting Esau again for the first time after 20 years. Um, and you'll recall that Jacob fled from Esau uh, because he was afraid Esau was going to kill him because he stole the birthright. And Esau does not match the caricature that Jacob painted of him. He's not the caveman, the dur-dur, you know, doing whatever he needs to for his food, nor is he out for revenge. Instead, um, instead of, of lording it over Jacob that he has the power in the situation, he runs to Jacob, puts his arms around him, and hugs him. And throughout their whole interaction, Jacob is the awkward, deferential brother who's trying to do whatever he needs to do in order to maintain control of the situation because he sees Esau not as a human created in God's image, but as an object, as a set of characteristics. He caricatures Esau. And he continues to speak to Esau with intense deference because if Jacob were in the situation Esau is in, Jacob would act very differently than Esau. Jacob would, would take advantage of being in a position of power um, and, uh, and, and would do a number on, on the family of, of the younger brother. But Esau does none of this. And what we see of Esau here, well, he's created a wonderful life for himself. 
It's almost as if being freed from the birthright and the blessing and the the weightiness of being the older brother has allowed him to pursue his own passions and to be his own person. Now, I think there, there's more to dig into here, but we've got a lot of other stuff to, to tackle. So um, I want to skip next to the Joseph story, because I think that many readers of scripture, many folks who grew up with the Bible, y'all are familiar with this story. Joseph and his coat of many colors, who is the favorite of his father and the envy of his brothers. There's fascinating parallels, I think, um, with uh, the the brothers pretending to kill Joseph and the story of Jacob stealing the birthright. But before we get there, Joseph is a dreamer. Um, much like in theater, uh, when, when the first words out of a person's mouth or the first song that the character sings is their I want song, and it tells you a little bit about their desires usually, that's the same way that we're, we get introduced to folks in Genesis. And we get introduced to Joseph in this way, where Joseph begins by saying, look, I dreamed this dream. And Joseph is both a dreamer and also an arrogant, insufferable young boy. Um, and, and you can feel that in how his father and his brothers respond to him. And so his father does him no favors by giving him this coat, signifying him as the favorite son. And then he goes off and sends him to give a report on his brothers. Um, you can't set up a child for uh, a, a greater amount of unsuccess here. So he goes to his brothers, uh, and his brothers know that he believes he's going to lord over him. His brothers know that dad has sent him to check in on him, and... Um, so they decide, hey, let's kill him. Let's kill him and be rid of him forever. He's an irritating brat and we don't want him around. And Reuben, the older brother, is like, well, maybe let's not kill him. Let's just put the fear of God into him a little bit. And while Reuben goes off somewhere, the scripture doesn't say, Judah comes up with this idea to sell him to the Ishmaelites, to the Midianites, they're called later. And so they do. They sell Joseph into captivity. Talk about sibling rivalry. And then um, they pretend as if they murdered him. They take his ornamental coat, his coat of many colors, or his long-sleeved coat, depending on your translation, knowing that dad's going to recognize it. They cover it in the blood of a young goat, um, and and they use this garment to deceive their father. There's, it's an amazing number of parallels. Just as Jacob uh, used a young goat to cook for his father, uh, just as he used the goat skin and the garment to deceive his father, so too Jacob himself is taken in by this deception, hook, line, and sinker. And this is one of the few times uh, we observe Jacob having strong emotions for another human being. We'll come back to that later. And it's clear, you know, this is a horrifying situation that Jacob finds himself in, but it also shows that Jacob is not in a healthy place emotionally. Um, he doesn't mourn appropriately. He mourns extravagantly. Um, he's a little more emotionally stunted than is healthy, and that's in part because of his pattern of objectifying people, seeing those created in the image of God as objects. And what that does to you, if if you struggle with this, know that it can begin to color how you see people. It can begin to color how you mourn. Now, we get several more stories uh, that are focused a little bit more on Jacob's sons than on Jacob from this point going forward in Genesis. And these first few that we're going to get into after the break, painting a morally ambiguous picture both of Jacob and of Jacob's sons. 
a couple of these stories are going to orbit around the idea of doing right by women. Uh, you've got Jacob's daughter, Dinah. You've got the story of the, the eldest son, Reuben, and what he does with one of his father's concubines. And we have Judah with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Each of these stories, I think, ought to come with a content warning. You see, Genesis is by no means as explicit as Game of Thrones or, or the books, A Song of Ice and Fire or anything like that. But despite that, the content is still graphic and shocking. Dinah, uh, the only daughter of Jacob mentioned by name, is taken and raped and laid with and abused, is, is how my translation puts it. And this happens while Jacob and his family are in the land of Shechem. Um, and, and there's a person, a prince of that land, by the same name. And, and this series of actions, the, the kidnapping and the rape of Dinah, is abhorrent. And yet, Jacob says nothing. Later in the narrative, Jacob takes Levi and Simeon to task, just erupting at them uh, because of their violent massacre of the Shechemites. It seems that Jacob cared more for the safety of his possessions than for the safety of his daughter. Talk about objectification. You see, Dinah's rape didn't spark his anger, but Levi and Simeon's decisive action did. And and you can see the scheming that Levi and Simeon have here, where they tell all of these people, hey, you got to be circumcised. That's the only way that we'll intermarry. That's the only way that, Shechem, you can have um, our sister as your wife. And they scheme so that there's, there's a certain known recovery period of circumcision, and they know that there's a certain day when a bunch of the, the young men of the village, of, of, of the area, are going to be hurting something fierce. And that's when they go and they affect their slaughter. And I wonder, um, how is our anger appropriately directed? When does this same thing happen with us? When are we like Jacob? When do we fail to direct our anger toward those things which are unjust and, and instead get angry when someone responds to injustice in a way that we wouldn't? Maybe you can think of a time like that. And, and Levi and Simeon's actions, to be sure, are, should be rightfully questioned here. But more concerning for me is Jacob's silence at the rape of his daughter. We must not, as Christians, be silent on matters of justice, even when it means losing relationships, even if it means losing wealth, even if it means losing influence. There are times when we need to speak up on behalf of those who cannot. Now, there's a little story um, all throughout Genesis 35. There's a handful of different stories where Jacob revisits Bethel, um, where, where God blesses him again. We, we get to see Benjamin's birth along with Rachel's death. And we also get to see how Jacob and Esau both come together to mourn their father Isaac's death. All of these are, are interesting stories, but we have a lot to cover today. So I want to focus specifically on one story that you may have missed as you were reading through, and that's Reuben sleeping with Bilhah. 
Now, Bilhah was one of Jacob's concubines. This was one of the handmaidens of, of, of Rachel and Leah. Specifically, it was Rachel's handmaiden. And, and we can uh, imagine that this likely happens not long after uh, Rachel dies in childbirth when she delivers Benjamin. And Reuben could be asserting himself as the new leader of this family by taking one of his father's concubines. That's something that scholars um, uh, believe could be the case. Uh, We see this in the story of David, which we'll get to later. Um, But he could also be poisoning the well, quote-unquote, so to speak, of the favored wife's handmaiden. By by taking Rachel's handmaiden and and, um, uh, sleeping with her, uh, he could make her more intolerable to his father and therefore keep Rachel from having any more children that may be considered hers through her handmaiden and also thereby gain an advantage for his own mother. Either way, there's some family system stuff at play here that is a big mess. Um, And and we see Jacob's deception um, being lived out in his sons as well, both in how Levi and Simeon don't let Jacob know what they're going to do and in how Reuben takes takes matters into his own hands and uh, uh, takes care of his, his father's concubine. We also see that in the story of Joseph and his brothers, and we see it in a slightly different way in the story of Judah and Tamar. So we've got um, this, this story that comes perhaps not in chronological order. This may have happened before uh, the brothers uh, sold Joseph into slavery. We're not sure, but we do know that there's some question about the chronology throughout this part of Genesis. So um, Judah marries this woman, has three sons by her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And uh, we, we're not told much about Ur, Onan, or Shelah, except that Ur was wicked in God's sight. And so God strikes Ur down. And Ur's wife, Tamar, um, watches her husband die before she can have a child with him. Now, when a brother leaves a widow childless in the ancient Near East, it was the responsibility of his brother to have a child with his widow on his behalf. This was called Leverite marriage, and it was a common practice. It was a way of ensuring that women would have children to take care of them uh, instead of, because women were considered property at that time. Um, and so if uh, the, the brother helps uh, the, the, the widow have a child, then the woman has someone to take care of her in her old age and has someone to advocate on her behalf uh, with the city elders, etc., So um, the expectation was that Ur's brother, Onan, would take Tamar uh, as his wife, even though that seems strange by our standards. That was the expected way of doing things. And and that uh, Onan's first child with Tamar would be considered Ur's child and would have all the rights and responsibilities of Ur's firstborn. So Onan lies with Tamar um, and doesn't want to help Tamar conceive. Uh, For whatever reason, whether he didn't like his brother, whether he didn't want to have questions of who inherits his stuff, um, maybe, uh, you know, a a whole bunch of different things. Whatever the reason, he intentionally makes sure that Tamar cannot conceive even though they sleep together. Uh, Some scholars use this to argue that any time semen is spilled on the ground, it's a sin against God. Um, That misses the entire point of Onan's story here. The failure to care for family 
leads to Onan's death. Um, his failure to take care of what his role in society, to have children on Ur's behalf, is what leads to his death. And now Judah knows none of this. Tamar has not come and told Judah any of the, uh, the what's been going on. So Judah is understandably reluctant to allow his last son Shelah to have a child with Tamar because you know there's it's like she's jinxed, right? So he delays. And he delays, and he delays, and delays, and delays, and delays, and and Tamar finally takes matters into her own hand and uh, manufactures a way to sleep with Judah. And and in doing so, uh, she makes sure to get um, not just payment from Judah, uh, as, as, as a prostitute would, but getting payment that can be traced back to him. Uh, a staff was sort of like um, the driver's license of uh, of that time. Like it, it was identifiable, and it signifies a person's authority. The signet ring, or the the signet uh, necklace, or, or or whatever this this instrument is, um, was sort of like a credit card or or, or, or a driver's license, whichever one I I didn't say was was the staff, and so. Tamar has these things that mark her as having some sort of pledge from Judah. And it's so interesting to compare and contrast how easily Judah goes and visits a prostitute and how quickly he condemns Tamar for engaging in prostitution. There is clearly a double standard here. He's immediately willing to burn her. He doesn't ask a question as to what happened. He doesn't ask for her side of the story. Um, there's no hashtag believe women, um, which we need to do. Uh, and, and Judah, by failing to do that, is then shown Tamar was in the right this whole time. And when Judah says she's been more righteous than I am, he means that both like uh, in terms of a, yeah, she she did right uh, this this whole way through, and also in sort of a, a a court mentality that if he were to take her to court, she would be justified. Uh, the law would justify her. So her delivery of twins uh, after after Tamar conceived, she has twins. It, it intentionally mirrors Jacob and Esau, just as her shrewdness with Judah is going to mirror the shrewdness of Potiphar's wife with Joseph in the next chapter, even though Potiphar's wife will use her shrewdness for evil. Friends, that's all uh, for this section of Genesis, Genesis 33 through 38. Um, I hope you'll join us next week uh, as we look through uh, the next section of Genesis, Genesis 39 through, I believe it's 44. And may God bless you in your reading of Scripture.